0: Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense or the United States government. You are strong, you are ready, you are essential. That is a theme for September 2018 Suicide Prevention Month announced by the DOD and the Defense Health Agency. Death by suicide affects those left behind with the burden of pain and feelings of confusion. Suicide loss survivors, family and friends of those left behind continue to suffer in shame. Today, I would like to dedicate this episode to those impacted by suicide, encourage those fighting with suicidal thoughts and remind the rest of us to be there for one another. I welcome my guest, Captain Brock McNabb, a clinical social worker in the United States Air Force. This conversation is a bit unusual because it's between two mental health providers discussing the life and legacy of another mental health professional, Pete. This interview might be emotional for some, and I ask that if you or someone you know have an emotional reaction to this interview or struggle with suicidal ideation, please seek treatment. 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-8255. It's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And if you're a veteran or active duty, just press one, And of course, for our active duty members, your local mental health clinics, your chaplains, you don't have to be religious to talk to a chaplain, and their service is 100% confidential. Military OneSource and your local military family life consultants are all great resources. Military OneSource and FLAG, Google that, very easy to use, very friendly. Hi, Brock, how are you?
1: I'm doing well.
0: If you don't mind, I'd ask you to introduce yourself to the audience and tell us about your career, what you do, maybe in just a few sentences.
1: Sure. So I'm the embedded mental health social worker for the 38th Rescue Squadron here at Moody Air Force Base in Georgia. We're a pararescue squadron, so I work with pararescue men and combat rescue officers as they perform one of the most important missions that we have, uh, certainly in the Air Force, but that's to provide combat search and rescue capabilities all over the world and provide humanitarian medical assistance to, again, folks that otherwise wouldn't get that. And I have the privilege of being the first social worker to embed with this kind of community and be here and take care of these folks. And I've been here about a year now.
0: Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview with me. I know you said you've been running around trying to prepare for yet another deployment. You've just came back from a couple of other deployments. Tell me a little bit about those deployments and uh, what what is your role?
1: Sure. I perform a job... Not too different than any other mental health provider in the military, in that I'm here to provide counsel to our service members, uh, both at home and abroad, and employ with PJs uh, here in rescue. I'll go out and basically make sure that they're uh, sustained and they're resilient, and that they can find the inner strength that we all have. And in the days uh, and weeks and months that they undergo deprivation and the arduous journey that war brings— to make sure that they keep their head on their shoulders and that they're able to engage and not lose their humanity. And every time I go down range with them, it's just to re-engage them as people and to let them know that people care about them and that they can talk about those those difficult things that sometimes we don't like to address because sometimes we think that that makes us weak. And certainly we know as mental health providers that uh, indeed acknowledging what scares us, acknowledging the things that uh, we have uncertainty about, that's actually where we draw the most strength at the end.
0: So, Brock, the reason that I know you is I've asked you a couple of years ago to write a piece for the Society of Air Force Psychologists. At the time, I served as the Vice President for the Society, and you wrote a beautiful piece about your beloved friend, Pete. And I'll be honest with you, that article had a great impact on me, and more actually than I had expected. When I read it to myself, I, I cried, and it really pierced me to my core. Can we start out by just reading the, the segment of it? And I'd like you, if you don't mind, read the beginning part where you talk about yourself and meeting Pete.
1: Sure, absolutely. I'll preface it by before I was in the Air Force, I was in the Army. And I was an Army medic who served on the line and got assigned on my second tour duty to an Army psychologist. And that's where this piece picks up. Never known anything about mental health. And I think we illustrate it here in the in the passage I'm about to read. So it begins like this. I never thought too much for psychologists until I started working for one. Pete was an Army psychologist and my new boss. I met him after I was assigned to be his NCUIC of his mental health team in Germany in 2005. He taught me all I know about mental health over the course of the months leading into our 15-month deployment to Iraq. His first, my second. I was a line medic who never did mental health work before, and he was an officer who never saw combat. We made the perfect odd couple. Over the course of the nine months leading to war and the subsequent 15 months that followed, Pete and I covered some strange area, from helping healing the emotionally injured to holding hands as people died. I don't know if I ever bought the whole idea of a military psychologist. They always seemed a little too far removed from the business of war as an army medic. I thought I was almost too far removed from the business of war. However, the army in some modicum of wisdom placed us line medics side by side with the grunts. We'd run into the fire to put a tampon into a buddy's bullet hole or a tourniquet on a limb blown clear off. So after I PCS'd my new unit, expecting to take over as an NCO medic for an infantry battalion, I was shocked to see my assignment was diverted to assume the role of NCOIC for Brigade's mental health team. And who would I be working for? An Army psychologist. God, I learned, had a sick sense of humor. On my first day, I reported for duty in front of my new boss, a captain, I was fresh off my first 12-month tour of Iraq as a reconnaissance medic, and this psychologist had just barely learned how to wear his uniform. I felt like Clint Eastwood's character in the movie Heartbreak Ridge once he met his new platoon leader, but as a good soldier, I kept an open mind, which turned out to benefit me. My new boss asked me simply, do you know anything about mental health? I answered, nothing at all, sir. Do you know how to do a soap note, he asked. Of course, sir. Too easy. Said so good, he stated with finality. He didn't miss a beat. He went to a box littered on the floor of his office, rifle round in it methodically, and pulled out two books Achilles in Vietnam by Jonathan Shea and Trained to Kill by Theodore Nadelson. Read both over the weekend, and we'll start doing mental health on Monday, he stated matter of factly. Roger that, sir. Will go.
0: Oh, thank you for reading this. Tell me about Pete.
1: Oh, Pete was a gregarious man. I've been asked over the years to describe him. And imagine Santa Claus in his mid-30s. Maybe a little bit portly in some way. Um, He didn't have all the facial hair and the, the, the billowing, you know, head of hair and beard. He actually had a flat top that you could land an airplane on. His hair was so squared away. He talked with a very gruff, gravelly voice. He was a voracious reader. And he loved to smoke. He loved Diet Coke. And sometimes he would turn beet red because instead of hydrating, he would drink Diet Coke too much. <laughs> he, had a, he, had a, he had a way of being able to talk to a person and make them immediately feel comforted and at home in a non-judgmental way. Which, as we know, as mental health providers, is really the 75, if not 90 percent of the goal that we try to develop.
0: Yeah, the key ingredient. Yeah.
1: And he was just a mountain of a man. When he walked into a room, everybody knew it. His laugh was very, and he was just the type of individual that immediately felt comforted in. He was very self-effacing. He wasn't afraid to make fun of himself, the sharpest wit of anybody I knew. He was absolutely intelligent, but he never used that to anyone else's detriment. He never put himself above anyone. He always presented himself as a servant and as a healer, and which is probably why I was so drawn to him.
0: And tell me about your relationship.
1: I was a sergeant. He was a captain. He was my boss. But very soon thereafter, we realized that before we even deployed to Iraq, working in an infantry brigade of about 4,000 troops, it's a high operations tempo. Everybody's moving. There's always field exercises that are going on for weeks or months at a time. Everybody's getting ready for war. And in 2005, when I reported to him, we were definitely in the throes of the Iraq war. A lot of casualties, a lot of issues were coming to light. The war had only been going on for about three years. And it was myself and him. And that was it for 4,000 people. And I was a medic. I wasn't even a mental health tech, so I didn't even have the formal mental health training.
0: Well, then the two books you had to read over the weekend.
1: Exactly. I had two books, which one of them is still sitting on my desk as we speak here in my office.
0: Can you tell us again?
1: Achilles in Vietnam by Jonathan Shea. He's a psychiatrist for the Boston VA who has basically chronicled the care of his Vietnam veterans that he cared for over the course of decades. And it was a profound book. And he tied it in with the Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and showed the nuance and the companionship and the similarities between two wars that were separated by 3,000 years. And that really helped me understand myself. And Pete was instrumental in that because he felt more than anything, if I was going to take care of people, I better understand the load that I'm carrying myself.
0: And load you carried for sure.
1: Oh, yeah. And he he was more than a boss. Um, He became my mentor. Mm. because not to be a nerd, but boy, if you look at Star Wars, and you got the Jedi Master, you got Yoda, and you got you know, young Luke Skywalker, the little whippersnapper who thought he knew it all. And I was Luke, and he was Yoda. Mm. And pretty soon, of course, as we know the story of Star Wars, you grow, and you grow through pain. And you grow through your mentors giving you that wisdom. And sometimes it's the mentor giving you the pain to make you face the things you'd rather not. And that was Pete. So pretty soon, as that mentor developed, it was only he and I working through the the pains of all these soldiers we had to take care of. We got closer and closer, and we developed a friendship that just grew deeper with every passing day.
0: I want to find a passage that you wrote about your deployment together at the time. Here it is. As the war raged on, so did our emotional lives. Half the aid station staff was self-medicating with benzos, rippets, cigarettes, and sex. other half wish they were. Every day we were guaranteed two things. The sun would rise and with it there would be people who would die. Our role as a mental health team was to save the ones we could. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Well, that was a hard thing. In medicine, you're trained to attempt to save them all and there's always an answer. There's always some method. There's always some procedure. There's always some evidence that you can use that'll Help a person in their healing. And you really buy into that. Obviously, we wouldn't be in these things had we not believed that we could actually help people, especially help people that are in their darkest moments. And what we found out, certainly in war, and and Iraq was very much a war at that time. The casualties were immensely high. The stress on the soldiers and and the life and the entire war was something out of a nightmare. And pretty soon you came to the realization, certainly on the mental health side, that all the people that are coming to see me, I can't touch them the way I wish I could. I can't give them weekly psychotherapy or, or even daily psychotherapy. I can't do the things that we would do in a normal, controlled environment um, to help these people grow, to create a safe environment, right? And we know this as mental health providers. I'm going to take someone that's in a, in a dangerous situation, whether it's through substance abuse or, or an abusive home Um, and I'm going to put them in a safe place, right? Whether that's a detox center or put them in a, in a safe house for, you know, battered, battered spouses or anything. We're going to remove them, uh, from, from the hurt. We're going to remove them from that environment that's trying to kill them. And in Iraq, you couldn't do that. In Iraq, the rules changed.
0: How did that impact you in the sense that you probably start experience, um, a sense of helplessness? Certainly. A little self-disclosure, I dated an army psychologist. He was deployed with a unit that was hit very heavily with multiple lethalities and lots of mental health issues. So he came back from a deployment very injured. Um, And the reason was over time accumulated helplessness, that there is nothing that he could do. He felt that maybe if he had more resources, he would be able to help. But he sort of felt... um, alone with not enough resources and just not being able to provide what he knew that the patients needed did you experience he yeah, something similar
1: absolutely oh my goodness absolutely and you put it very eloquently pete once said in a, in a letter to one of the commanders the commander of the parent unit we belong to he said i feel like i'm a captain of a sinking ship mm-hmm. we're all going down and he can't save the people and he took it very personally he, he, he wanted to save. He, he knew if he could just get, you know, a few more hours with this particular person or if he could get the person off the line and, and have them come, you know, not go out on patrol again the next day. If he could just give them some safety for 24, 48 hours, he could make a change and make a difference in, in these young people's lives. And he wasn't afforded that. It goes back to what I was earlier saying. The Army wanted a Band-Aid they didn't want surgery regardless of how how desperate the circumstance was we needed the bodies out there we needed them to fight and mental health certainly back then and you know of course we're talking by this time it's 2006 this is 12 years ago and in the throes of war and mental health was not, not prioritized mm-hmm. and so as a psychologist whose sole job Is to provide care and and help these human beings overcome these obstacles and find a quality life. He wasn't he wasn't afforded that opportunity at all, which led to the understanding. It was almost like having being in palliative care. You're working in a cancer ward, and all your patients, you know, are going to eventually pass away. And he would have the patients in his you know little hut that we had on, on our you know forward operating base, and. They would cry and they would weep and they didn't have hope. And he realized he might have 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes to let them know that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Even though he knew it wouldn't be. Even though he knew they were going out to almost certain death. And in some cases, they did. They never came back. He he had that moment in time with them mm-hmm. as a human being to, to give them all the love that he could before he sent them away.
0: How heartbreaking. How did you cope with this, you and Pete?
1: Oh, goodness. Yeah. We, uh, there was a lot of gallows humor. There was a lot of um, us taking care of each other. Pete knew that I was in a pretty rough emotional shape. You know, This was my second tour, and when we weren't taking care of patients in in our little mental health clinic, daily we were over just next door in the aid station in the trauma rooms providing medical care. And as a medic, I'd be working the tables with the traumas, and, and Pete would be doing everything he could you know, from holding people's hands to being there with them as they died. Whatever he could do with his level of, of medicine, just to help. And he knew that when the missions came to go outside the wire, sometimes he had to go to other Ford operating bases, he would say, Brock, stay here. Just man the ranch. I'm going to go out there and take care of these folks out here and try to find some downtime if you can. Um, so he tried to protect me, and I tried to protect him. If there was someone in the middle of the night that was in crisis, If they didn't absolutely need Pete, I would manage it myself, then I'd go to one of the on-call physicians in the aid station and have them take care of, you know, if we had to medicate them or do whatever. You find grace in one another, and that's how you get through. Anytime you can have a moment of grace, Mm. you give it to one another, and that was the humanity that we showed, and that's how we got through, along with venting (laughs) (laughs) a lot, you know, Um, and just— shaking our fists sometimes, you know, at the sky and saying, you know, how could this happen to me? You know, why don't you let me help, you know? And, and then other times it was just accepting the moment and saying, well, here we are. Mm. And one time I I told Pete, I go, these guys deserve so much more than me. And he looked at me and said, Brock, but they have you. And how empowering Mm. for a young man to hear that from both my mentor and my friend. And that's the grace we showed each other.
0: When did you know in your heart that he was really struggling and what did you do?
1: Well, when we were downrange, you started noticing it. You know, when you're on these long, long deployments, you know, ours was over a year long and you just watch each other deteriorate. Everybody starts strong and courageous and ready to go. And then as the months go by, with every passing day, every passing trauma, you watch people change. And with Pete, of course, I knew him intimately well and he, me, and we would watch each other just disintegrate. And towards the end of our tour, I watched him. He didn't want to, you know, there's a couple movie nights that we would do with some other buddies. He would just stop doing that. He would stop socializing. He just wanted to be by himself. We all understood because in our own ways, we were all doing that as well in our own ways. And he started. And then when we all left Iraq and he got home, it carried on even more. Like everyone else, we all went home and we had to face the realities of the real world. And the real world was not kind. The real world did not understand what we went through. We all battled that. But certainly he did. When you have a heart that is given so much, he didn't know how to give as much. And when he tried, people didn't receive it in the same way. He would often think, I'm trying to help. But people didn't understand his kind of help. They're like, listen, you're not in charge anymore. Just do what we tell you to do. And so he started struggling with that. He struggled with his own identity. He tried teaching college, did that for a year. And he called me and he and I would talk every night, every night on the phone for for years up until he died. We would just process this every day. It was like therapy, best friend therapy with each other. And yeah, he ended up struggling teaching college because he's like, I'm dealing with 19-year-olds who think it's a, a crisis if I give them a B on their paper. Mm. He says, when the 19-year-olds I was used to dealing with were worried about if they were going to see tomorrow, Mm. he struggled with that. So there was a multitude of things that just started to happen that you started to see that he was disillusioned or disenchanted with with the world and his place in it.
0: Was there something that you wish that you did or didn't do?
1: Yeah. It goes back to the night before he died. Like I said, he called me every night. Every night for years for a little while after we both got out of the army lived right across the street from each other in California we did that on purpose and we worked at the VA together and then after he moved we were separated physically he moved back to Minnesota and I took a job opportunity in Hawaii but we talked every night and the night before he died he called me and I didn't pick up the phone and I assumed I'll just call him tomorrow and I never did
0: and then you heard from Pete's wife.
1: I did. Yeah, His wife called me. I think it was the 2nd of January. And his wife called. And I recognized the number. I was like, what's going on? And she was hysterical. And they had just found Pete an hour or two before. And she called me. And immediately, my life as I knew it ended. But I immediately went into soldier mode like okay let's work this where are you at are you safe where are the kids at we went through a triage process and then I got off the phone with her after we got the basics out of the way making sure that they were safe told her I would call her back in a few hours but I needed to get home I told my staff that I worked with I said I got to go I said I don't want to be back and I got in my truck and I started going to my house I don't remember a time in my life Where I've felt that alone and that unsure Mm. about everything. Literally, my life had ended.
0: I'm so sorry. Do you mind reading a small passage from the story you wrote, the one that starts, I mentioned earlier?
1: Yeah, yeah. As New Year's 2013 was upon us, I spoke to him about how he was doing, he was fine. He had plans with the kids, so he would be out of touch for a few days. I had plans to sit on some beach and relax myself. All was well. The night of January 1st, Pete called me, but I missed the call, and due to the hour, I didn't return the call, resigning myself to give him a ring in the morning. As I got to work the next day, he beat me to the punch and called me. At least I thought it was him, but it was his estranged wife, and that's when my life ended. Pete is dead, she told me suicide by firearm earlier that morning when he didn't pick up the kids his ex-wife got worried and called the police who did a welfare check and found him his suicide note was simple don't let the kids see me like this call my wife in nevada and brock McNabb, my little brother i mentioned earlier that most people who've lived through the things i've lived through have war stories i don't i did six years in the army 28 months in iraq as a medic lived through horrible events, and experienced things I'll never be able to talk about. But I don't have any war stories. I only have one story, and it's not about war. It's about love. My wife always told me that if anything were to ever happen to her, that Pete would take care of me forever, and I him. Pete was the love of my life. That is my love story.
0: Thank you for reading this. When was the last time you, you read what you, what you wrote?
1: The day that I sent it to you, a couple of years ago.
0: What is it like to reread it now?
1: It pulls on my heartstrings, I'll tell you what. Someone was asking me, I was doing a bereavement case a while ago, and the patient I was talking to said, I'm starting to forget what my loved one looks like and what they sounded like, and that really bothered them. And then it dawned on me, and I hadn't thought about it with my own processing of Pete until that moment, that I understood what that means. And my patient said, does that mean I'm forgetting them? Does that mean I'm forgetting them? Does that mean I'm going to lose them? And, and I realized through myself, said, no, 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 that doesn't mean you're losing them at all. That means they've become a part of you. They're inside you now. They're in your heart. You don't need to know what their voice sounds like or or what they look like, because they're a part of you. Their lives meant that much. Now your life and their life are together. They're one. And I often thought I was the prodigy. I was the legacy of Pete. He taught me everything I know. He taught me things I didn't even think I'd want to know. And every day I come to work, and every day I work with these troops uh, whose care that it's my honor to provide. It's him that's doing it. It's him that's giving the care. I'm just the one lucky enough to carry the message.
0: And, and with that, tell me what impact his suicide had or is having on you.
1: I think I mentioned it before the day that, you know, he died and I'm driving home, I never felt so alone. And not to be morbid, but certainly to be very real and transparent, I still feel alone. And it's not not something to be pitied, but it's something where it does bring me strength knowing that even though I can't talk to Pete, when I reflect inside and I say this often, what would Pete do? Hmm. What would Pete say? And sometimes I find myself laughing because I'm like, oh, Pete would totally disagree with what I'm about to do or say. And I have a laugh about it because I'm like, yep, we still debate to this day. And that's such a healthy thing. But I'm profoundly impacted. Everything in my life is a little less a little less colorful because he's not in this world. And so I feel it. Do I have a life that's worth living? Absolutely. My goodness, yes. That was his gift to me to keep living and to live well. That's that's also very important regardless of what we do. Do we live well? And that's a huge gift. So even though I get lonely and sometimes I get sad and I'm like, gosh, I would just love to hear his voice one more time. I know he's he's not that far away and I know that's what will keep me going.
0: How do you cope with that kind of loneliness or how have you coped? What did you find useful?
1: Well, a couple different ways. One, you have to take care of yourself. Every day, I force myself to get up and go for a, a run. I call it a jog at my age, but you know. I stay healthy and I tell people I spend an hour with Iraq every day. And that's when I run. And that way, the other 23 hours of the day, I'm at peace with Iraq. And that's also when I think about Pete. And that's one part, right? I take good care of myself. But then the other part is, how do I project hope? How do I project love? And everyone around here knows me as the hugger. And of course, this is a very alpha male centered outfit that I work for. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of the joke that I'm the hugger, but everybody knows that when they're talking to me, they're going to get a big hug and it's going to happen and that's going to be okay. But they all know that I'll be there. And that's a gift. And that's how I cope with not having Pete, because that's what Pete did for me. He was there in all the dark times. Believe me, I had so many dark times, both before, during, and after the deployment, where, if he didn't literally hold my hand, you know, he held my heart and he never, ever let me give up. It's my duty now. That was a gift he gave to me. Now it's my duty to give that gift to others. And through that, just through that simple act of, I'm able to instill that hope in others. And as you know, Anna, as mental health providers, we see people sometimes in the worst moments of their lives. The power of being able to give hope is perhaps the greatest power of all. And that's how I cope, knowing that I still have it in me to do that. And we don't have to have all the answers. That's not how we do mental health. We give hope and we show grace. And that is the true medicine.
0: Do you feel anger over his suicide? Or do you feel angry at him?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure sure. One of our mentors, Pete's and my mentor is a old psychologist. He's probably in the 70s now after Pete died. And our mentor contacted me. First thing he said, I'm mad at Pete. And that gave me permission to be mad too. And, and again, what I found was we can be mad at the people we love. That's okay. So many people feel, oh, I, I can't be mad at, at the people we love. That's okay to be mad. And I found that being mad, that's an okay experience, because then I can work to remedy that. And I was mad for a long time. How could he leave us? How could he abandon us? Doesn't he know how much he was loved? Doesn't he know how much I needed his love?
0: How do you answer these questions?
1: That's the question.
0: Hmm.
1: I think often we forget how the person lived. We're so focused on how he died or that he died and that he chose to die that we fail to look at and remember how they lived. And when I look at how he lived, it's easy to forgive one act of selfishness. That's hard, but eventually when you talk to other people that love him and they're mad too, the ones I love the most were the ones that held on to me and let me express that without judgment. And help me grow through that. Yeah. Certainly, you don't ever do it alone. I guess at the very end of the day, it's up to me to not be mad anymore. And 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 I think to be again, be fair. I have my moments where I'm mad, like God, why aren't you here? You didn't get to see this great thing. But then again, I remembered how we lived. And my my feelings of anger slowly start to dissipate. Then. And I just remember how lucky I was that we had the time together that we did.
0: When people attempt to commit suicide, oftentimes they feel like they're burdened burden to, to other people, like they're no good to this world, that they're burdened burden to the world. Is there something that you can recommend or you can suggest to those who are struggling through some tough moments right now?
1: Absolutely. Find a reason, no matter what it is, to just live one more day. And that was something that Pete taught me. I had thoughts of taking my own life in Iraq. Things got that bad. And that was the thing he taught me. It sucks right now, but can you find one reason? And it could be something very small. It never has to be anything big. It could be if you're a parent, you know, I want to, I want to see my, my little one off to school. I want to see one more soccer game. I want to call my dad one more time and and tell him how much I appreciate him. I want to be able to have a great lasagna at the Italian place down the road. I, I want to make one last phone call. Do something. Just can you stay alive one more day? Can you find that reason not to make the ultimate decision in ending your life? Because then you can't make any more decisions. But if you can find one reason to stay alive, you can do that. And
0: what about those who are in your position who are dealing with the aftermath of being left behind and coping with the confusion and the anger and feeling alone and probably myriad of other things.
1: The first thing I would say, because it worked for me, and this isn't just because I'm a mental health provider. You said it perfectly. So many people think that, oh, gosh, I'm a burden. I don't want to burden anybody with my stuff. I'm just going to end it. It's such the wrong answer. You're more of a burden on others if you choose to leave this world. Yeah. And especially for the folks, if they're listening to this and they feel, well, gosh, no one loves me. No one, no one will miss me if I'm gone. I would challenge that 100%. Every human being has an impact on other people in this world. And it's there even if you don't see it. And it's up to everyone to understand what those things are. And if people are that down, they find themselves on that low point right now, that's when you start reaching you're in that hole, you start reaching. Someone will grab you. That I guarantee.
0: I'm curious what your thoughts on talking about suicide, suicide suicidality in public forums, like like we're doing right now. And this concept of contagious suicide, where the publicity of suicide increases potentially the number of completed suicides in the area or attempted suicides in in the area. Do you have any ideas of maybe recommendations to the supervisors, to the commanders of how to discuss suicide?
1: Absolutely. The thing I think we do as a community, and not just a military community, but as an American community, maybe even a world community, we make suicide such a taboo that no one wants to talk about it. And I think the military is actually doing a a good job at least trying to, to have those conversations. And they're cumbersome and clunky sometimes. And usually the classes are facilitated by professional military folks who they know about as much about mental health as they do about going to the moon, yeah. but they're trying. Yeah. And what I would tell people is keep trying as long as we talk, because I absolutely believe suicide is contagious. When people start thinking, Hey man, that looks like a good idea. We want to get rid of that train of thought. Talking about suicide, as you and I both know, Anna, does not mean people are going to go off and commit suicide. Yeah. But what we're doing is we're talking about, hey, there's always people out here to take care of you, especially in the military. Everybody has a boss. Everybody has a wingman. You're never alone. And that's done on purpose. Everyone is together. We do everything together. Sometimes we do more together than we wish we would. But the point is, we have to keep talking about it. You have to be able to have those conversations. You have to be able to reach out and say, hey, I care about you, and I might not know all the answers. But together... We'll find those answers, and together, we'll get you the help that you need. And that's it. You don't have to know the right thing to say, because I promise you, it does not exist. Mm -hmm. You just have to be there. And if you can be there for your troops and show them that, and maybe put down the PowerPoint slide when you're given the suicide brief, you know, every year, you just sit down and say, listen, guys, I care about you. And no matter what happens, we can get through all of this, no matter what it is together and i think that would be the message that i would spread
0: it's so timely because the theme for the september 2018 is a prevention month um is announced by dod and, and defense um, health agencies actually make it your mission to be there so very very timely and appropriate I really appreciate your time today and your thoughts. Thank you for sharing so vulnerably, so sincerely. Is there something that you'd like to add before we wrap up today?
1: I think Pete's legacy, it lives in everyone who ever wore the uniform. And certainly, you know, if people are listening to this who've never served, that's okay too, because there's so many different ways to serve each other. And at the end of the day, That would be his proudest legacy, and certainly with me, and I know that, but I think with everyone that he ever encountered, when he saw from the lowest-ranking private to the highest-ranking general, those human beings, they were able to show grace and humanity to one another. That's what gave him hope in this world, and that certainly is what gives me hope, and that's his legacy, and I hope we all take that, and we run our full natural lives continuing to give hope, and showing grace to one another and that I have confidence we will.
0: This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice, and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners, and another not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is ana.v.fidotovam.mail@gmail.com. It's a-n-n-a dot, v dot f-e-d-o-t-o-v-a dot mil at mail dot mil.